many organizations struggle when it comes to communicating and realizing their business strategies. Many workers don't even understand the strategies in their own company. Welcome to the North Star with William Ulrich. Find out where your organization stands, what you might be doing right, and where you can improve. Now, here's your host, William Ulrich. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You're listening to the North Star. Feel free to contact me by email, LinkedIn, or at my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Today, we'll be discussing business-driven software design with my guest, Charles Bowman. You can find reference material related to this show, including a link to his latest book on the North Star Radio Show page of my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Charles Bowman is a respected senior software architect with over 35 years of experience developing software systems. As managing partner at Polygon Partners and principal at SoftWrite Solutions, Charles has served as chief architect for numerous prestigious clients. He's taught graduate and undergraduate courses at St. John's University, City University of New York, and St. Thomas Aquinas College. He's a regular contributor to and editor of a number of respected technical journals. Uh, Charles has authored several books, including the, his most recent title, How Things Work, the Computer Science Edition. You can reach him at charles.bowman, and Bowman, B-O-W-M-A-N, at polygon, P-O-L-Y-G-O-N, dash partners.com, or on LinkedIn. Uh, welcome, Charlie. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, anything you want to add that I missed in your uh, introduction? Uh, no, I just hope I can live up to that introduction. We'll see. We'll see how your business takes. All right, great. Um, I want to provide just a little context for listeners who aren't really familiar with uh, software, software development, systems, that type of thing. Uh, we're talking about software systems here. Uh, we're not talking about an app on your phone that's, that's, that you're using to call Uber. You're basically talking about, although that could be it, uh, we're talking about software systems that are running at thousands of organizations, automating a range of areas that include bank accounts, insurance payments, utility, uh, transmissions, communications, pipelines, hospital airlines, hospital and airline schedules, food safety, airline routing, uh, and scheduling, and more. Um, so uh, that that we're in the ballpark there, right, Charlie? So I just want you to give us some context here, uh, particularly some of the organizations you've dealt with in terms of the size and scope of some of these uh, software portfolios. Yeah, you're definitely in a sweet spot, Bill. Um, and I would only add that um, uh, smartphones are not out of the picture. In fact, in many cases today, uh, with enterprise applications, smartphones contain the views that actually interoperate with enterprise software. In terms of size, um, uh, that obviously varies by organization, but for the most part, uh, if we're talking about uh, Fortune, you know, 500, Fortune 1000 firms, we're talking about um, software in a range of hundreds of millions of lines of code that these organizations have to manage, uh, write, develop, and extend every year. And in some industries, it's, it, it's even more complex. For example, in the insurance industry, uh, growth usually occurs through acquisition and merger. And when that occurs, not only do you have your hundreds of millions of lines of code, but you're inheriting someone else's millions of lines of code, and you have to get that all to work together. And in terms of scope, uh, for most large, you know, mid-sized to large uh, corporations, and I would even include small corporations these days, almost every aspect of their business is um, involves some level of software automation. 
And that could be software that they developed. And uh, I guess we're going to be concentrating on most of that today, but it's also software they purchased. So even large firms uh, or you know small firms as well will purchase their um, accounting software, their HR solutions, uh, but it's still software that's managing parts of their business. Yeah, and um, we're talking about some fairly large budgets for these these companies and, and these organizations. Can you give us any uh, any insight into that? Well, yeah, a few days ago, um, funny you should ask that, but a few days ago I happened to bump into a Gardner report, and um, I was looking at the worldwide IT spending forecasts, mm. and it turns out that in um, 2019, there was almost three and three quarters trillion of dollars spent on software IT development worldwide. And surprisingly, at least for me, that during the height of the, the pandemic in 2020, that actually increased to almost $3.9 trillion, which I guess in retrospect, maybe is not surprising. Um, IT development is one of the um, you know types of businesses that can deal with remote uh, work and remote operations. So I guess that's why things, you know, still increase, but it was uh, a surprising number. And for individual companies, it obviously uh, ranges by company and by industry, but you're, you're looking at on the average seven, eight, sometimes 9% of the bottom line is IT. And that raises a lot of eyebrows for a lot of C-level executives. But in reality, um, that is the way we do business today. Software is fundamental to every business, even if you're not in the software business. Yeah, so let's talk about, um, and again, we have you know listeners who are not really uh, software developers or programmers, maybe never even took a, a programming course of sorts. Their experience with technology is, might be the extent of their phones or maybe a laptop or two. Uh, so when we talk about uh, computer software here, uh, can you just give us a little little background or context in terms of what a um, a software developer might be actually creating? Yeah, for people who don't work with it, software sometimes is um, uh, sort of a nebulous idea. It, it the short answer to your question, Bill, is that software are is the instructions that drive the hardware, but that isn't much help for for a layperson. Um, when people are frustrated with their computers and they kick it, uh, you know, they're kicking the hardware, they're not kicking the software. I think the best example would be that of a, a chef preparing a big meal or a big banquet that's following a recipe for you know the appetizing, the entree, dessert, that sort of thing. And you could walk over and pick up the recipes if they were printed out on a piece of paper and look at the instructions but you're not really touching the instructions. You're touching you know, sort of a tangible representation of those instructions. And we can do the same thing with software. We can uh, print out a software program. In the old days when we used to do this regularly, we used to call it program listings. But you can touch the paper that the software is printed on, but they are not the actual instructions. With, going back to the example of the chef, the, the instructions are in the chef's mind about when to stir the pot, when to add the salt, that sort of thing. And with software, it's loaded into the hardware and it drives the hardware and determines which, which instructions will operate on which pieces of data at whatever moment in time. So yeah. hopefully that sort of paints a picture. Yeah. And when somebody gets, for example, a uh, insurance bill in the mail that, that's wrong, 
or they don't think that you've paid or they've misallocated your payment for your your uh, your phone bill or your internet bill, right? That's all software in the background. Uh, either doing it right or doing it wrong. Uh uh, I would say today, increasingly, the answer to that is 100% yes, but it's still in many organizations. If you, for some people, still in mail-in paper checks, and someone might have to type that, that value in. There still could right. be uh, room for some human error, but uh, to a large extent, what you said is correct. So there's, there's, there's good ways, and we're, we're smarter today than we were 50 years ago. So there's good ways to develop and design software, and, and we call it architecting and design. Uh, can you give us just a, a little insight into when we talk about, you know, good software architecture or good software design? Because this is where the business executives that I talk to really glaze over uh, in terms of architecture and design. This is where you lose them. Yes, and in and, and my practice, I've had the same experience, particularly with C-level executives who don't have a technical background and have to try to, uh, you know, grab this tiger by the tail and incorporate it into their strategies. But uh, like in any engineering discipline, uh, software development requires, let's call it a good foundation. And just like when you're building a house, you need a foundation adequate for the building that you're putting on top of it. We try to do the same thing in the software world. I mean, we're not worried so much about physical weight, obviously, but we, we talk about uh, the, the weight and the added value of layers of software that sit on top of this foundation. And I think the best way maybe uh, to describe it would be as follows. I, I think most listeners would be familiar with operating systems such as Windows, uh, Linux, Mac OS, Droid, that sort of thing. And... Uh, they know that that's software. Well, that sort of starts the foundation for most applications and in that operating systems or the layer of software that protect the rest of the application world from the nasties of the hardware. So an application needs to do something like, uh, let's say you're trying to display a, a picture on your phone. You don't want your applic every application to figure out how to do that on your phone. You ask the operating system to do that for you you say, here's my picture, please display it on a screen. And it deals with the hardware to make that happen. When we're building applications, we follow sort of the same model. We, we call this layering. This is one approach. I mean, in, in being honest here, this is not a complete answer, but I think it'll paint a good enough picture for our discussions today. But we try to do the same thing uh, when we're building application software in layers. So you could imagine that the first layer or the lowest layer, if you will, of an application program might be the layer that touches down on the operating system and hides the nasties of talking to the operating system from the rest of the application. So if your application uh, needs a picture to be, be, to be displayed, it asks the lowest level to say, please talk to the operating system and make this happen. The operating system talks to the hardware to make it happen. Lo and behold, the picture displays on your screen. And by uh, judicious use of layering and many other design techniques, we try to build software applications that not only are well-constructed in and of themselves, but also are well-constructed within the context of an enterprise architecture that might serve the entire enterprise and, and organization. So I hope so, that helps. Yeah, thanks. And, and so now, if we don't architect and design our software well, uh, in other words, we haven't we haven't thought about how it can scale. Uh, maybe we've used old techniques that maybe aren't aren't really the best, so we don't have a lot of reusability. 
So what are some of the kinds of issues that uh, one, would, one would see arising from uh, poorly architected software and poorly designed software? Okay. Um, th there are many aspects uh, to this, Bill. And um, let's start with maybe the most visible to users, which is a poorly designed user interface. If that, if, if that doesn't meet the user need, for example, uh, if you can imagine a customer service rep having to uh, jump between screens constantly uh, when, when speaking to a customer on the phone, you, you realize that that application design hasn't been designed that well, and therefore it's not meeting that user's need. So the first thing that can happen uh, with a poorly designed application is user rejection. However, I, I think you're looking at a, a sort of a broader scope, and from an enterprise perspective, there can be more serious issues that can occur. One uh, major issue is the fact that it becomes difficult for applications to be extended and modified. And that uh, really affects the bottom line, and the C-level executives really raise their eyebrows. I've been in many meetings where um, a, you know, a C-level executive is pounding on a table saying, you just charged me you know, $3 million, $5 million to build this application, and now you're telling me I want this small change. It's going to take another $750,000. Please explain. And it's difficult to convey to people that it was a, the poor design choices up front that's causing all this development because if you think back to the layers, if we didn't des design the layers correctly to make this change at a very top level of the application, we might have to dive all the way down to the lowest layers to make changes. That has ripple effects throughout the development cycle, including changing code, testing. It really it, uh, increases the cost. But other issues um, can arise as well. For example, can the application play nicely within the enterprise? Uh, if you consider, um, uh, for example, a brokerage house, when you think about their business, it's really an order management system. But if that order management system cannot interoperate with the billing systems or the systems that actually send and route orders to the exchanges, they're in a lot of trouble. And if they can't do it reliably and they can, if they can't do it accurately, uh, they have no business, literally. So. I was just going to say, we're going to talk a little bit more about the, uh, uh, about the, um, the role of business in all this, but um, you get, uh, I just want to mention the concept of maybe fragmentation. Well, you said the pieces don't play together well, right? Um, so yes. you, you have uh, handshakes or non-handshakes between things. And so something's happening and then all of a sudden, uh, something that's disconnected and you can't, you know, you, you, you've got to somehow try to figure out how to, how to make that happen. Is there this concept of uh, a lot of software teams building software that maybe doesn't all connect or we use the term interoperate very well? Uh, that, is, that is a major issue in many corporations. I mean, uh, to be honest, um, uh, in my practice, I'm not usually called into companies that get this done right, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so when I say I see it all the time, it's by definition uh, the company's reaching out for help. But that is one of the major aspects of it. Uh, executives are tired of hearing that uh, I've just spent X number of million dollars standing up this new application that's going to, you know, revolutionize my business, help my users, you know, uh, overwhelm my customers, and yet it can't manage to send a message to uh, another system saying, uh, we, we just got an order. Can you please ship it? 
So it, it is very frustrating for people, uh, particularly executives and also the IT staffs. And there are many reasons for this that, you know, maybe we can touch on later in the discussion. But the fact of the matter is it is so costly uh, and, and so pervasive that it really can affect a company's ability to be competitive in today's markets. And that is a really important message. And now these systems have to interact, as, as you were saying, with these older systems. These older systems aren't architected very well, right? They, there's a history. No, but um, I, I think that, that that's sort of a, um, a multi-part answer. Uh, I think you have to take design uh, or judge designs in context. What I mean by that is uh, designs of, of a time and of a set of tools and also uh, of a set of budgets and constraints applied to the customer, applied by the customer. So, for example, I could design you a two-family bungalow for the beach, and I could also design you a 100-story office building. One can't say that one design is better than the other. Both designs have to meet certain objectives, certain budgets, and use certain tools and construction techniques. And I think you have to judge these designs based on their intent and the tools available to those uh, designers at the time. Mm. That, that's fair. And, and, yeah, we go way back. So we're not expecting everybody to know state-of-the-art technology or design techniques 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing business-driven software design with my guest, Charles Bowman. You can reach him at charles.bowman at polygon-partners.com. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business. And stay current. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs. And you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, 
please send an email to WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. That's WMMUlrich at TSGConsultingInc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn, email, or my website. We're discussing business-driven software design with my guest, uh, Charles Bowman. Um, I, Charlie, I, uh, I, I kind of broke in there, and, and I know you want to continue talking about um, uh, the issue of getting things to all work together, interoperability, we call it. So uh, I'll let you pick that up here. Yeah, um, I just would like to follow up on that one point, Bill. So um, I think the issue is not whether or not we can judge the the quality of the designs of, you know, legacy systems, uh, you know, a 30-year-old uh, COBOL application, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. I think what people think is poor design is the fact that it's very dis- difficult for them, these applications, that is, to interoperate with newly developed systems. And it's a a uh, extraordinary challenge for organizations to try to move forward with these anchors that are potentially holding them back. And my personal view is that it's safer, generally speaking, not to touch the old applications. It's usually the case these days where uh, organizations don't have the talent and expertise for a COBOL program or a Fortran program or nowadays even maybe a C programmer to open up these cans of worms and sort of uh, try to fix them or extend them. I think it's uh, more important that the new applications that are being developed become backward compatible and you build that into the new architecture. But very importantly, you have to do it in such a way that this is another, we'll call it a layer, that can be wrapped around the new system that can in, to allow it to interop with the, interoperate excuse me, with the old system, but that that software will eventually go away when we finally replace all the old systems. So it's a very important piece of software. It, it requires diligent development like every other uh, new application you're building, but in the long run, if you do your job right, that piece of software should go away. Yeah, I was working with a bank that they, they, they had a team build this new system and it was going to replace two other systems they picked up in a merger, but somehow nobody ever thought about how to get it to work in the context of the bigger picture. And um, it, it was the last thing on their minds. And it should be the first thing I would think in your mind is if you're putting anything new in, is how's it going to interact with its environment around it, right? Exactly. I, I think um, it's um, incumbent upon a senior architect, whatever titles that uh, people are using today, who's ever in, in charge of your IT shop to look at those things. It should be, if it's not number one in the list, it should be number two. Uh, it, it, it is so important and can either cripple or make or break a merger, for example, as you were talking about, that I don't understand why it isn't, more, the, the thinking about it isn't more prevalent. It's an extremely serious issue. It is. So let's talk a little bit more about the uh, business issues uh, that these systems can cause. When I, at, at break, we were talking about, I, I brought up the uh, Spirit Airlines have been in the news lately, so we've all seen them, but they've had some, some issues with scheduling. But th- there's, there's a lot of examples out there of businesses that have had trouble. Usually it, it, doesn't, it doesn't always raise to the, to the level where it gets into the press. So most people don't really realize what's happening. 
But uh, some of the business challenges that organizations face because of these systems, these, these, at least these older ones that aren't, aren't working well? Uh, well, again, it runs the gamut. We touched on a few before, but they can get extremely serious. One that comes to mind uh, that's probably the, the most extreme is back in, um, I think it was 1979 with the NORAD issue. Uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with it, NORAD uh, used to monitor the airspace for the United States. This was the height of the Cold War, and its job was to determine whether or not we were under attack uh, by missiles. Well, because of so- poor software design, a simulation was allowed to enter into the production environment, and that simulation uh, simulated a Russian launch of a 200, I think the number was 200 missiles coming at the United States. And at the time, I believe the powers that be, you know, the president and his advisors had eight minutes to make a life or death decision as a result of that. Now, it turns out some clever people figured out there were other radar installations that they could use to pick up to see if anything was in the skies. Turns out there wasn't. Everything was uh, nice and, and it worked out well. But imagine if... That did not, uh, if they didn't have a secondary way of confirming this, what might have happened to, to the world. Now, obviously, that's the other extreme. And with businesses, we're not dealing with, uh, we're dealing with something more in between. But just imagine um, uh, you're, you're an insurance company and you're merging and you, you can't get your systems to interoperate. You retire one billing system and all of a sudden you can't get a billing out for a large segment of your customer base. What does that do to your uh, cash flow? What if you can't get policies out? You know, simple little things like insurance cards or a cancellation of a policy in a timely manner. Uh, I mean, these are just um, maybe simple, obvious examples, but they can wreak havoc with an organization. And it it is totally um, pervasive throughout a system, excuse me, throughout an organization, how one domino can just affect the entire organization. It, it does. So we have to be careful if we're, we're putting in new software. Uh, organizations are still building software, even though we have these very large portfolios of existing software, but we're building a lot of new software. I saw a study recently that said something like, um, and I don't know if this is even close to right, but even if it's half, 92 billion lines of software were cre- are created annually. Um, you said that the productivity was going up recently during the uh, COVID shutdown. Uh, so, you know, whether it's accurate or not, uh, there's, can we agree that there's an awful lot of new software being built every year at organizations? Is that, is that fair? Oh, yes. I, I've seen, excuse me, um, estimates that were even higher than that. I, I don't know if, you know, we can come up with a you know, truly accurate number, but the fact of it is software is here to stay. Uh, it is finding its way into more and more areas of our lives. I mean, you almost can't touch a product, service, or, uh, you know, item in your house that isn't in some way affected by software. The table you bought last week at Ikea may have been cut on a machine that was driven by software. So it, it it's part of our everyday lives. And for businesses, they're um, attempting to automate more and more of their day-to-day activities, which is great, but it does add the complication of having all this new software interoperate with all the existing software. And without an enterprise architecture and a well-thought-out plan of how to make this happen, 
uh, many organizations wind up shooting themselves in the foot. The Spirit Airlines that you brought up is a good example. Uh, I don't think they anticipated the, the level of demand and change changes that were required as a result of uh, COVID and all the other issues that they've been experiencing lately. But there is a situation where they they have they're having trouble just rescheduling their own passengers. I mean, it, it's not only a logistical nightmare for them; it's becoming a PR nightmare as well. It is. Um, so when we when we, we see organizations, they're they're setting new strategies, they're trying to get into new markets, they're trying to be more competitive. Uh, maybe the customer demands are changing, so they have to be more responsive and, and more customer uh, accommodating, more customer friendly. Uh, a lot of that ends up getting then that strategy gets translated into software projects. So do you see that uh, uh, just as a general rule or maybe specifically that those software efforts are uh, doing a good job at helping organizations uh, implement and deploy their strategies in a timely way? Again, in my practice, the answer would probably be a sweeping no. And that is not to say that's the entire industry, but again, I'm not being called into organizations that are getting it right. But to your point, the one of the biggest issues I see is that the, the customer or the executives want A, and the, the IT shops are building A prime or B. And that becomes, you know, not, not just a serious money drain, certainly the money is important, but what might be uh, more expensive to the company is the loss of time. They may be losing a competitive edge or a, a uh, competitor may have leapfrogged them as a result of their taking so much time to stand up new features, services, or what have you. So it's not just the tangible costs associated with this, but it's also the intangible costs that are tough to put a uh, dollar sign on I mean, again, going back to Spirit Airlines, what is the PR issue going to well, – how can you put a number on the PR issue associated with these events, right? It becomes very difficult. We know it's going to impact future sales, but to what degree? And the point being is that if we in the IT world are not building what the business folks need, we are performing a disservice. I don't think it's always 100% an issue of the IT world, but if – Ultimately, we are the people uh, that get pointed at when it, things don't work. It, it does slide downhill towards the development teams. Uh, so, it, but they're not the only ones involved. So do you think that these software teams that you've seen out there, uh, do they have the are they gaining the necessary insights or understandings, understandings into not just what the business does and what it needs, but sort of the overall picture that they're they're building into in, in terms of uh, developing good software solutions for companies. Do they, do they really understand these business environments that they're, they're building software for? Uh, again, I would have to say, generally speaking, no, in, in most of the cases that I'm involved with. And uh, I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Uh, it, it becomes abundantly clear to me uh, during my first meetings with uh, clients I'm in a strategy session, usually with executives and high-level managers, and I ask a simple question. I say, um, hey, guys, where do you want to be in five years? And more often than not, I get one of two types of answers. One, I get silence, and the other, I get five different answers. Both are equally troubling. 
right? In the first case, nobody has a clue. In the second case, everybody has a clue, but they're different. And there's no way that you can offer guidance to um, an IT organization as to what to build under those situations. So uh, if I may sort of pander to you a little bit, I would say that these organizations do not have a North Star. So they have no guiding principles. And I, I think it comes back to whether or not they actually understand their business, their core competencies, and what their uh, you know, competitive advantages and disadvantages are. If they don't understand that, I don't see how they can adequately provide guidance to the IT staff and to build the systems that are going to guide them into the future. And you wind up building systems that turn out to be anchors. I'm I, I do. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I was going to mention that not having a North Star, or having five North Stars, neither of which are the greatest thing in the world. Um, you know, the underlying theme of this whole whole show is strategy execution. And I work upstream from a lot of these uh, these software projects and and I somewhere between where there's a bunch of people sitting in the room with coming up with ideas and innovating. And that turning into software, uh, there's a lot of places where that can break down, right? So, and there's an awful lot of people involved. You've probably been on projects where you've seen uh, a lot of business analysts, but also a lot of other people playing different roles, right? You've got things, and, and I'm, I'm going to just use some terminology people may not understand, but agile terminology, like you've got, you've got product managers and scrum masters, and there's all kinds of new words people are using for all of these other people that are involved in these efforts. Um, and somewhere between, again, the executive sitting in a room trying to figure out where they want to go and, and maybe putting something on paper, and then all the way back down where you've got a developer building software, you've got a lot of people in the middle in those, in those efforts. Is that something you've seen? Unfortunately, yes, Bill. I'm sitting here chuckling, uh, at uh, some of the comments you were just making. Uh, I almost don't know where to begin, but let me, let me start maybe backwards. Uh, uh, in, uh, with regard to your Scrum comment, I've been in Scrums where management has outnumbered the developers. And I, I don't understand how that could possibly be. I mean, it's completely backwards. It's inverting the pyramid, you know? And uh, it, 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 I know at that point, that this particular application is just doomed. It's just not going to work. Uh, I think the other side of the coin is you touched on with the business analyst. This is sort of a pet peeve with me. So forgive me if uh, I start to sound like I'm ranting. Please get me under control. But what happens is, uh, as I said, we have a disconnect between the executives trying to specify where we are and the objectives for where they want the business to go and the developers understanding what they have to build is a gap and what uh, organizations uh, who are experiencing that gap sometimes do often do actually is bring in business analysts and their job their role is to bridge this gap between what the business and the users need and the and um, using the technology to solve that problem unfortunately it's been my experience that business analysts neither know the business nor the technology. And they just uh, create another layer of complexity that does not um, lend itself to a um, you know, satisfactory solution. One example, um, do I have 30 seconds? Do you, mind? Yeah, you, got, you got time. Okay. Uh, so uh, this uh, one particular example, I, um, a client started building – 
there was a huge application that could be divided into segments. Let's say there were five segments. And they started building segment one. They, they brought in um, a lot of high-priced um, developers, uh, uh, enterprise architects, and they also brought in some folks to do human factors engineering for the screens. For whatever reason, there was a business decision made. They had to suspend that work. When they restarted, they started on, let's say, section two. And they brought business analysts in. And the business analysts not only discarded all of the work that was done in the UI model to build screens customized to the users using current technology, they specified that the developers were to, to replicate screens that were 20 years old in the new technology. So they didn't gain anything from the money that they spent and they didn't leverage the, 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 you know, the new UI capabilities of the new technology. They simply rebuilt screens from 20 years ago using JavaScript. So it was, it was a, a serious mess. What, what, so one I, of our, yeah, I was just going to say one of our colleagues at a, at a place we were at working jointly a number of years ago said, he says, I got 50, there's 50 people on this project and I got six people writing code. He says, he goes, <laughs> I, he goes I don't really have any idea what all these other people are, are, are supposed to be doing here. Um, you know, we, we and, and, and I think in, in future shows, we're probably going to be bringing up a little bit more about, you know, what do all those people do who are, you know, supposedly, uh, what, 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 you know, you put the methodology name of the day on it, but what do all those people do? Uh, we are going to take a break. When I get back, I want to talk a little bit more about a couple specific things that, you know, if, if people don't remember anything, maybe they'll remember a couple keywords. When we get back, I do want to talk just briefly about this concept of what, what's a software service? What's service-oriented architecture, and, and why, is it a, why is it a good thing? So we are going to go to a break. You're listening to The North Star. I'm William Ulrich. We're discussing business-driven software design with my guest, Charles Bowman. You can contact him at charles.bowman at polygon-partners.com, and we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Your organization is spending seven, eight, or even nine figures annually on transformation programs, and you're questioning the bottom line business value. You were told not to worry. We've engaged the best system integrators, and they said all is well. Has your IT organization become a black box where money goes in, but nothing comes out? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich has seen every side of this story, from upfront happy talk to painful post-mortems. Find out what's really going on. Visit tacticalstrategygroup.com and ask about TSG's Transformation Oversight Service. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Are you having trouble articulating your strategic objectives? Not sure if your program investments are aligned to your strategic vision? 
Wondering why your six, seven, and eight-figure program investments seem to evaporate into thin air, even as your business teams are left to add more people, take on more risk, and take heat from unhappy customers? Tactical Strategy Group's William Ulrich can help ensure that your strategic objectives translate into sustainable, successful investments. For more information, visit our website at tacticalstrategygroup.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to the North Star. If you have a question or comment about the program, please send an email to wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. That's wmmulrich at tsgconsultinginc.com. Now, back to the North Star. Here again is William Ulrich. Welcome back to the North Star. I'm William Ulrich. You can reach me on LinkedIn email or my website. We're discussing business-driven software design with my guest, Charles Bowman. Um, so the, the, the question that we were leading up to prior to the break, uh, Charlie, is uh, what recommendations then would you have for these organizations that are uh, challenged in all these different ways? Uh, most of the time, I, I sort of have a, a high-level process that I recommend to my clients. Obviously, it has to be tailored specifically. But at a high level, I think uh, you need to address all the disconnects in the following manner. I think you start out, um, the organization has to put together a business architecture. That will help them understand what they have and will also help them project where they can be in the future, with, you know, which is the best direction for them to head. Once they've established that, the business architecture can now inform a bunch of different artifacts uh, that the IT people can use. First and foremost, foremost, I believe, is the data model, an enterprise data model. You know, in whodunits, you follow the money. In enterprise data, in enterprise uh, design, you follow the data. And I don't think many executives appreciate how important their data is to their business, that after human resources, it's probably their most valuable asset. And, you know, I don't know how many uh, uh, executives in, um, uh, in banks might know that, for example, I'm just picking banking arbitrarily. Once you have the, the data model in place, now you can build the enterprise architecture. By the way, in many cases, these can be built in parallel, the data model and the enterprise architecture. It doesn't have to be sequential. But the point is, is that the enterprise architecture must take the data model, the enterprise data model, into um, consideration as it's being built. Now, once you have those three deliverables, the next thing that I think many organizations miss, and this is what you were touching, we were touching on before, is auditing their existing systems. I think there's three categories that you have to place uh, your existing systems into. Category one is uh, this application is on its last legs. We have to replace it as soon as possible. Category two is we need to replace this application, but it's stable enough that we could do it at an appropriate time. And the third is on occasion, there are applications, even though they're legacy, that are functioning well and it doesn't pay to spend the money to replace them. You can redirect the money to uh, developing other new applications. Once you have those pieces together, the last part of the puzzle is a transition or migration plan. This is actually the roadmap 
to get you from where you are to where you want to be. And that has to take into account the data architecture, the enterprise architecture, but it also has to be um, monitored by senior executives to make sure that you maintain and that you're still on pace while you're heading in the right direction. We talked a good bit about data um, uh, a show or two back with Seth early, so uh, hopefully people can jump back to that because the data is, is, is not normally in great shape. And we don't always have, in fact, probably more often than not, we've got bad data architecture and bad data design. Uh, can you just give us, and this is, we're going to do a, uh, a couple of 30-second uh, segments here on some, uh, some, some learnings here. Uh, what, what's a software service? Um, we spoke about some design attributes earlier in the show. Uh, another attribute that's very important to designers is something called an abstraction. An abstraction is the ability to create a software uh, model of a real-life entity. So a service would be one example of that. And just as a quick example would be um, a shopping cart. People use shopping carts in supermarkets all the time. What do you do with shopping carts? You allocate one, you, you pull it off the queue, you walk in to the store, you add uh, products in, uh, to the shopping cart, you remove products from the shopping cart, you check out with it. Well, when we're building that abstraction called the shopping cart, I think most people have used it on uh, Amazon or other real, real, uh, retailers, you have this, we try to model it in a similar way so that that service has an allocate shopping cart. It has add a product to the shopping cart. It has remove a product, so on and so forth, and checkout. So a service is a software component that has a well-defined abstraction that sits out on the net, I'll call it, okay? It sits somewhere in your environment that applications can call upon as needed uh, when they need the service from that particular uh, abstraction. And there's benefits to uh, developing systems using these software services. Is that correct? Yes. The, uh, not to get too technical, but first is scalability, the ability to uh, add service to, to support services as demand increases. So if, if shopping increases between 7 and 10 at night, you can add more uh, instances of your shopping cart service to, to help handle the load. But it also allows you to develop what I call point-in-time applications. When you press a button on a browser, and you, you know, you're using a, a browser-based application, and you say checkout, for example, many services might be involved. You might have the inventory service where you're going to decrement quantities because you purchased certain products. You have, obviously, the shopping cart. You might have a fulfillment service that's going to schedule the packaging and delivery of the actual products. The point is, it's only at that moment in time does that application need those three services. Once that's completed, the application doesn't need those services and doesn't have to be, quote-unquote, connected to them. It only has to interact with them at that moment in time. So the concept of an application, as we used to think about it in the old days, has completely changed. And an application is an instant where your browser needs, or the application running in your browser needs, five services to complete a transaction then it needs nothing waiting on your next command. So it allows a lot of development advantages to build systems that way. And I think if we compare it to the old world, you might have a, a bigger company might have, especially with multiple groups or divisions, business units, 
they might have 500 or 1,000 places doing something as simple as just updating a customer address, right? Um, if you have a service to do that, the idea is we're going to reuse that service to, to do that work. Uh, we're not going to have 500. Oh, we may not have one, but we certainly shouldn't have 500 to 1,000. Is that, is that a fair statement? Uh, it's absolutely a fair statement. And honestly, you should have one. Now, there are rare cases that you need uh, more than one uh, edge cases. But the fact of the matter is, if your data model, if you have an enterprise data model, you probably only need one service. Yeah, ag agreed. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm a purist myself, so I'm, I'm, I'm right with you on that one. So, uh, so then your experience then are the, our best practices in software design and software architecture being applied? And I think you partially answered this earlier, but are they being apply, applied in these development projects and efforts that you're, you're seeing out there today? Unfortunately, no. Um, I, I think it is the, um, the, uh, the fact that people think new is better. And they don't understand that just because you, you, you buy a new hammer doesn't mean the nails are going to go in any easier. You still have to use the tool correctly. And what I see particularly with Agile is that it becomes bloated. And you might as well start doing waterfall. It, I, I liken it with some clients. Uh, it turns into uh, each sprint turns into its own waterfall um, methodology. And it's just so big and so cumbersome uh, why even uh, employ Agile? You might as well just go back to Waterfall. So I don't see these practices being implemented well. And I think people uh, believe that if it's like an antibiotic. If you have an infection, you take the antibiotic, everything's going to be okay. These processes and techniques have to be managed by people who understand uh, how to use them in order to achieve the, the results that they promise to provide. Right. Um I've seen, uh, and, and uh, we're not here to talk about uh, quality of, of software developer, but uh, somebody said wisely one time, not every lawyer graduated at the top of their class. Uh, not every software developer is the best software developer you've ever met, right? So there's, there's, there's millions of developers. I guess uh, some stats I've seen, um, you might have people on your team that don't really, uh, they haven't been trained effectively in some of these techniques. And, and you know, now you throw on top of it the heavy weight of a, uh, a heavy methodological environment and, and you're creating, you're probably creating more disruption in a lot of software projects, development efforts than, than maybe you would want to have. Is that, have you seen that where software teams, um, you know, the environment is just difficult to even function in? Oh, absolutely. And in, in some cases you only need one or two bad people on a team to uh, really wreak havoc. Uh, the, what tends to happen is that if you have a poor performer, not only are they not living up to, you know, the expectations of the team, someone has to cover for their shortcomings. And there's only two choices. We, well, I guess there's three. One is you can ask someone else to work overtime to compensate. The other is we can wait for that person to get done and slow up the project, or somehow uh, we add a new body to help them, which adds expense to the project. It is, uh, it, it is a nightmare, and I think it's going to get worse because, as we mentioned earlier, the, as the software industry continues to expand, we're not graduating enough engineers to meet the demand. And many people who don't have computer science degrees uh, are going to become programmers. Mm. Now, I wanted one quick caveat on that. I work with 
two individuals personally. One had a history degree and one had a marketing degree, and they were two of the best software engineers I've ever worked with. So I don't think it's just the degree that makes the programmer. I think it's the person that makes the programmer. But most often, it's the case that good, solid training will yield good, solid programming. Yeah, that's actually a, a, a really great point. So in our, in our closing few minutes or a couple minutes here, um, how would you then, what kind of messaging would you try to give business leaders, and not just, not just IT leaders, um, but business leaders, because this is a concerted effort. We said the business needs to be involved in here. So what, what kind of recommendations would you give senior people in terms of uh, some best ideas on, on how to go about these, these they're not gonna stop developing software. So what are some ideas they can, they can, they can use? Well, I think it goes back to some of the things we spoke about, but um, I think the first thing uh, C-level executives and senior managers have to come to grips with who are not in the IT uh, part of the company is that software development is not easy. It is very difficult to write a software application. It appears easy. You type some commands and something happens on a computer. It's all nice. But the fact of the matter is to write a professional caliber application is very difficult. And another thing I don't think people appreciate is, and I know you know this, and I know this is trite to say, but every line of, of code that's written is being written for the first time. So I don't care if your senior developer has uh, worked on 10 other order management systems. If they're working on your order management system today and they hit a, uh, the enter key on a line of code, that code was written for the first time. Now, hopefully that person's experience has helped them write a better line of code than they did in the past, but that gives you an idea of the difficulties in building software. So to manage that, I think the most important point is um, patience. I think the senior C-level staff has to hire good people and give them a little bit of time to get their arms wrapped around the problem. Uh, part of that is getting a business architecture done, an enterprise architecture, and a data model done and then I would say the best thing that they can do is start small. Everybody needs confidence and nothing breeds success like success. So I think the best thing is to start with a small uh, application and stand it up to prove that everything works. Great advice. Uh, thank you, Charlie. Um, my guest today has been Charles Bowman of Polygon Partners. We've been discussing business-driven software design. You can reach him at charles.bowman at polygon-partners.com or on LinkedIn. You can find links to some of the material referenced today, including his latest book, posted on the North Star Radio page of my website, tacticalstrategygroup.com. Uh, thank you, Charlie, for sharing your insights today. They were excellent. Okay. Uh, thank um, you for inviting me. Yeah, my guest next week will be Don Estes. We'll be discussing solving the legacy systems challenge beyond the vendor hype. You've been listening to the North Star. I'm your host, William Ulrich. You can contact me by email or LinkedIn or at my website. Thank you for joining me today, and I'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to the North Star. Please join host William Ulrich for another edition of the program next Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll continue our discussion on strategy execution then. 